You're listening to Trek FM. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Welcome everyone to Trek FM's local watering hole where, of course, the hosts from the network and people from all over the interwebs just drop by, talk all things geeky. I am the host, Matthew Rushing, and I'm very glad that you're here tonight. I hope you've grabbed something special from Ruby uh, because we got some fun to talk about. Andy, would we call this fun? I don't know. There's some pretty dark things to talk about, I think, but yeah, worthwhile. Yes, yes, yeah, I, okay, we have some important things to talk about. I think that's the way we should put it, because I don't know if Mockingjay Part 2 is fun, so. I had more fun watching it than I did with Fantastic Four, so there's something there. That, (laughs) I think everybody was just glad to have the pain of Fantastic Four done with, uh, Oh goodness, man! What a what a bad memory. I keep trying to scrub my brain of that one, but uh, that that turd bad guy at the end is hard to get away from. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Well, as you heard, Andy is with me here to talk about Mockingjay Part Two. And before we dive into that, just want to remind everyone that the Six Hundred Two Club is part of the Trek FM network. You can find all the shows for Trek FM at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. We're also online and on our own website at Trek.fm. You can find us on Twitter at Trek FM and, of course, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek FM. If you would like to send us any contact, if you would like to send us an email or your thoughts or anything about what you think about what we talk about here on the 602 Club, just go to Trek.fm slash contact, choose a show, choose the 602 Club, and that'll come to us. And we will respond post-haste. And, of course, you can also find us on the Babel Conference, which is the listeners-only discussion group on Facebook. Just type Babel into the search field on Facebook. Or, of course, you can go to the website at trek.fm and click Discussion on the menu bar. And, last but not least, if you would like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to have that from you. Just go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm or look in the sidebar on any show page. Well, Andy... I had a question for you because we talked about Mockingjay Part 1 about the same time last year when it came out. And, you know, now that the end has come, did you feel like after watching this film that the choice to split up a 300-page book into two movies was justified? Nah. Mm, Not... Not really. I mean, one thing that's always true of any book-to-movie adaptation that you have is that there's always more in the book than you can get into the movie, no matter how long the movie is. So in that way, it allowed a lot of the, the themes to, I guess, breathe, and you had more room. But I don't know that they needed two movies for it, to be honest. Especially yeah. since my my main issue with it is... The last third of uh, Mockingjay is basically an extended action sequence for most of it. And it's really hard to keep that pacing going. Um, It's like when you're pacing a movie, you have to have moments in between the action. Otherwise, the action gets boring. And I I had a bit of problems with the way that this movie was paced just because it was some similar stuff over and over and over again, which is fine. It was well, it was well crafted. Like the action was well crafted, but if you're taking Mocking Jay as a whole, you're having a lot of your setup moments and your character moments and thematic moments in a different movie. Does that make sense? No, I I completely agree with you. Actually, um, you know, as I was sitting there with the movie, I was I was thinking to myself, and I I actually read the book is as well and and I was able to you know I read the first half for the first movie and the second half for the second movie so I, I even had that split in the book um but it is strange because you're right this this film does have a very extended uh, a- 
action feel to it. And what's interesting is that they actually did cut out quite a bit from the second half of the book to still fit it all into this film. Um, there's a whole training aspect for uh, Katniss and Joanna as they're going to join the army and they have to prove themselves first. They cut all of that out. Um, and that's, you know, a good 15, 20 pages. Um, and uh, the sequence with Tigris is a lot longer in the book as well. Um, and, and so there are a lot of these moments that, yeah, you, you just kind of ended up with, and I really like it, and I actually just watched, and I think it's a good comparison, The Battle of the Five Armies, the extended edition. And a lot of that movie is an extended battle. Um, it, it's, it's very long. But at the same time, for me at least, they were able to break it up so it didn't feel monotonous. And luckily, it doesn't feel monotonous here, but I just feel like maybe you should have just made a, an epic like three-hour conclusion to the you know Hunger Games saga, and it might have felt better. I don't know. Do you think that would have worked? Do you think people would have been okay with sitting there for like three hours and ten minutes to, to round out the final Hunger Games film if it was all in just one film? Yeah. People sat through three hours of, what, six Lord of the Rings Hobbit movies. That's true. People yeah. sat through Titanic. People sat through Avatar. Like, people can handle a three-hour movie if it's good. So they could have gone that way. Uh, at this point, I don't know if I can say which would have been better because we don't have really anything to compare it to. I just... To me, they don't make natural halves, if that makes sense. Mm, because yeah. the the one that I would compare it to most is uh, Deathly Hallows Part 1 and 2, the Harry Potter ones. But Deathly Hallows Part 1 and 2, even though you have the Battle of Hogwarts in Part 2, you also have a lot of character moments and some mystery unfolding. And, you know, you have the ups and downs. Um, whereas for most of this book, they're doing, they have one goal and they're, 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 they're barreling down that goal. And, um, I don't know. It just, it didn't, I wouldn't say monotonous either. That's not the word I would use. It, I just noticed that, you know, maybe an hour and a half in, I was starting to, you know, shift in my seat and be like, okay, they're still running, you know? Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of running. Uh, it feels Just, uh, like a no, Doctor like Who episode a in that. Phenomenal amount of running. Yes. <laughs> uh, you can understand why the actors uh, in these films had to be in such great shape. Um, but, I mean, that, and then I guess in the second movie, they're all wearing like skin tight outfits too. So um, when I put on skin tight things, nobody wants to see that. So, um, yeah, I. I really do feel like, you know, like you said, Deathly Hallows is the only thing we have to compare this to. And that's a 700-page book that's wrapping up one of, like, a, a really epic series and an epic conclusion. And I think it works really well there because there's no way to cram all that in, even if you do, like, a three-hour movie. You, you do lose too much. I really do feel like here they did themselves a disservice by not finding a way to put this all together in one because I feel like those character moments from part one and the the conclusion in part two are better when they are together, you know? Um, it's, it's why Suzanne Collins didn't release part one of the book and then part two later on because it, it flows better as a story. And, and I think... Um, you know, a lot of the themes and everything that even we talked about with that first movie would resonate even more so if this whole book was in one film. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's weird um, because they, they, they're doing this with Allegiant, too. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I've read all the Divergent books. I saw the first movie. I haven't seen the second one yet. And, but I can't imagine why they need to do that for that at all. They don't. It just makes, it, yeah, it makes no sense. And, and that's where, 
It really is, and it's sadly, I think that's where the the money thing comes in. We're just going to try and milk it, and that's that's kind of sad. You know, it's like make a quality product so people want to go back over and over again instead of giving us quantity product where you get less and less return. Yeah, that's, well, I'm sure the studio accountants are, you know, diving in their big pile of gold and chuckling madly. So I don't know if we'll we'll see an end <laughs> to this trend anytime soon. I'm just picturing all of them like Scrooge McDuck. That's exactly what I was thinking. Like they're a big room for, full of gold coins and they're just like diving into it and rolling around. I mean, it's a big franchise. It's a reliable franchise. They wanted two movies out of it. Well, you know what? I can understand that I, I you know i guess just being a movie lover you know i would i guess i'd rather have it it be the best movie it can be um and you know it not every story n- n- has a part 1 and a part 2 you know and and i definitely think you know reading mockingjay there really i there is kind of divide between like wrapping up all the ramifications of Catching Fire and then the progression of the story and, and the finale, but they still work better <laughs> together. Yeah. So I think Suzanne Collins definitely knew what she was doing for sure. And um, well, this movie does have some really interesting questions as it does the whole series. And um, one of them was you know how we fight why we fight and what rules do we fight by and there's that great scene where Katniss is is on the transport and BD is talking to Gale and they're talking about these weapons that they're going to use which will come into play later and it really brings up that question of you know do you use the same tactics as your enemy even if you would normally think of them, uh, if you weren't at war and you just heard about them, as immoral or terrible or wrong. And and the questions about, you know, what's in war are all things, you know, lawful. And I, I thought that that was a really great thing to be bringing up, you know, in, in our day and age. Yeah, I mean, the justification for violent acts. And one thing that I like about it is when they put Katniss versus Gale in that. They're both right, and they're both wrong, which is the best kind of moral dilemma. Gale has point that if they don't win, you know, everyone they know will be sunk back into an oppression, and in that case, he's making the point that the ends justify the means, right? Freedom is worth this, Um Losing the lives of their enemies in District 2 is worth the lives of everybody else. You know, cost analysis, basically. Whereas Katniss is coming at from it a more idealistic, more moral perspective, I would say, in which she cares more about how they get there and making sure that they are ethically... Hmm... How do I put this? She doesn't want to lose her soul, basically, and do things that she thinks are wrong. And both of those are valid viewpoints, and both of those are the kind of viewpoints that come up whenever war happens. And somehow you have to try and find a balance between the two. The thing that most bothers me about Gail's perspective is he's very clearly dehumanizing his enemy. He even goes at it from a perspective of a hunter and how animals, they tra- he traps animals. He talks about wolf dens when he's talking about cracking the district to nut, you know, their mountain. And yeah. he talks about hummingbird traps. He's very clearly making a line in his mind between them and us which is a completely human and completely natural response and one that we see all the time. But that's a problem. What was interesting about uh, the the arguments is that, you know, Gale does have valid logical points. 
And yet, at the same time, it's Gale's type of thinking, which, and Katniss even says this to him, well, with that kind of logic, you can rationalize anything, even sending children to the Hunger Games. And that's the thing that I really like about her point and where I think it is morally superior and just superior in general is that it it goes beyond logic to the wisdom of seeing that you are going to lose your soul. You you are going to become your enemy if you don't uphold the values to which you have even when the going gets tough. And yet, if they had not followed Gail's plan in District 2... Would they have won the war? Well, but they don't completely follow Gales because they also, you know, they leave open the train tunnel and allow the people to make the decision for themselves. They just have them trapped so that they can only come out one way. Yes, So, but numerous people died in that, in that explosion. And it's not even that Gale has a problem letting them out. It... Uh, I should make it clear that I'm also on Katniss's side of this. I don't think that the ends justify the means. But that's how that's how people look at it when they're trying to fight a war. What is going to be the most efficient way to their goal? And it's a really it's a really tough decision to make. But it's yeah. also a slippery slope. You know, you, it, it completely is. And I, I think that that's one of the things that I like about the movie is that, and the book series in general, is that there aren't any easy answers to these questions. You know, we would all agree that freedom is worth fighting for, freedom is worth dying for, and that all people should be free. But as we know from history, freedom isn't free. It, it costs, you know, because there is always been, <laughs> as long as we have recorded history, um, a, a battle raging, you know, between good and, and evil in some ways. Um, and, and people willing to do whatever it takes to hold power and um, people needing to do what, well, Maybe not always whatever it takes, but doing what it needs to be done to restore freedom. And the hard thing of not turning into your enemy, which we see at the very end, Coin has just become, you know, she's just become the next Snow. Uh, in her fight for freedom, uh, in, in some ways for her, tyranny's just kind of taken over. And that's super scary, too. I wouldn't classify it so much as good versus evil as power versus powerless and just this natural human tendency to oppression. <laughs> all I don't know. Well, that sounds like evil to me. No, I, I agree with you. It's just often what means are justified is solely based on what side you're on. So... Something that, say, Americans justify every day might not be seen the same way if you're in a different place. So it's just, it's interesting to me because it's a, it's a lot more nuanced than, you know, good versus evil. Although I do believe in both of those concepts. It's more like, it just gets really, really gray. Both in our yeah. world and in this world. Yeah. No, definitely. And I think you just raised the question, too, because, you know, if, if one side says one thing and the other side says the other thing, you kind of run into that question of uh, relativism. And what do you, and if that's truly what you believe, then, like, that's another really difficult and, and frustrating conversation because then morality is, is whatever your culture says it is, and it becomes hard to just say, well, our our way is better than your way, you know, like with any kind of authority. And that's a that's a whole other can of worms, which would probably be a Metatrex thing. But <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. it, it creates a huge question because, you know, like you said, like in America, this might be the right uh, the way people think people do things, uh, you know, say uh, in Europe or Africa or something, people might do things differently. And 
you know, um, deciding which one of those is better um, requires a, a scale that we weigh things on. But if both of them are supposed to be equal relativistically, I I don't there. I mean, it's not a scale anymore. It's just like whatever you chose. All right. Go for it. I was thinking of the kind of term that, like, the difference between the, a freedom and a, ter- a freedom fighter and a terrorist is basically what side you're on. <laughs> That's what I was kind of thinking of. And you even see this in this movie. Like, Snow goes on TV and calls, you know, Katniss and her crew, like, basically these evil terrorist type people. And then to Katniss, she's a freedom fighter, right? It can yeah. get very murky. Well, and, you know, too, when you think about it as well, it's the same thing in, like, say, Star Wars. You know, you don't think in the Imperial newsletter, uh, they're talking about the terrorists. They're not talking about the rebellion or the rebels, you know. Uh, or so, Akira. Yeah, Akira and Deep Space Nine. Exactly. You know, so, I mean, that the, the wonderful thing about art is it continues to show us that um, there are two sides to, to every story, but we we have a consistent belief that and it's it seems to be ingrained in us from somewhere that tyranny is wrong and that oppression like that is wrong and that i think is is definitely a good thing and the fact that that's in a lot of ways very universal it it, it speaks to something bigger so yeah it's just a I love that this movie and and this story, you know, um, that that teenagers are reading it, you know, and and that kids are reading this and having to grapple with these issues, hopefully, because, you know, these are the consummate issues of our time and every time, you know, like it it never ends. Uh, And, of course, famous phrase is that those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Well, our, unfortunately, our history just makes that true because we keep doing the same things over and over again and and having some really bad outcomes. Um, I think that's also the definition of crazy, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. But, hmm, yeah. Anyway, I, I don't know. Um, it was a great conversation to see because in the end... Uh, you know, the that's what makes the turn for Katniss of her killing coin so huge is because she's realized this about coin, you know, that, that she has turned and be she will just be another snow. And part of that, I think, is is because coin has been so willing to do whatever it takes to get power back for the people that she's so willing to not lose it. And all she can see at this point is that she's the only answer. But then by doing that, she's just turned herself into snow. It seems to me that she basically ran 13 with an iron fist. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And so in this case, it's not so much that she's turned into snow. It's that she's expanded her reach. She's brought freedom and prosperity to her new empire. Just like Anakin, <laughs> uh, you know, like, but by destroying one evil, in some ways, she's just kind of become the new one. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it's it, it makes for a fascinating discussion and a really, again, gosh, important thing for us to be looking at in our in our world today and in how we make decisions, why we make decisions, what do we do and how do we do on a you know global scale um it's it's hugely important um and you know what really is interesting is that that part where coin is talking to the victors you know and asking them if they can hold at one symbolic hunger games (laughs) talk about a slippery slope um of oh we're just gonna do it once we can quit anytime we want but uh, yeah it's horrific yeah so i i mean that's the thing i think 
for me that I responded to so well. And I think this brings to a great place, you know, movie versus book and, and how does this second part live up to that second part of the book? Uh, do you feel like this adequately portrayed all of those themes, especially the, the, the important ones we were just talking about, in the way that Suzanne Collins was able to do in her story? I think it's a very faithful adaptation. I mean, there aren't very many big changes there. Uh, almost everything is is from the books. Um, even even the the changes you met, like you mentioned, Joanna and Katniss don't go through their training, and Katniss just kind of hides away, and suddenly she's in the capital. That's all in the in the. That's all streamlining. That's you know minor changes. Yeah, the rest of it is basically the book. And that's good. I mean, that's we're going to see a movie version of this book. The problem for me is that I didn't particularly like I liked the book, but I didn't think it was as good as the other two. And I had some problems with the way that Suzanne Collins wrote it. So then, therefore, I must also have some problems with the way the movie was. But if you liked Mockingjay, I would say that you are most likely going to like this movie. Because for the most part, it is the book scenes shot on film. So that in that case, yeah. I think it was a very faithful adaptation, and in that case, in that in that way, it was very successful. No, you're uh, just like the first part, and and I remember when we were talking about this uh, last year. Goodness, th- that uh, there may be a couple of minor scenes that they didn't put in the film, or they they switched a little bit. Um, you know, obviously Effie was in that, that, uh, part of the story and she wasn't at that point in the book, uh, and some of the things like that. And, and again, that was just streamlining storytelling, um, more than anything so that uh, there wasn't so much to do, but this is very much the same way. Uh, and I thought it was a little bit interesting because, you know, in the book, you do have Katniss having to go through at least, she goes through a month of training to teach her how to basically be a soldier, because Katniss isn't a soldier. She's a hunter. And those things are different. And so it was one of the things I was reading the book, I really liked that coin made her and Joanna go to this training and Joanna doesn't end up going with them because she has a nervous breakdown again but you know it, it's where Katniss learns how to use a gun and things like that so that when she does get out in the field she's not a liability anymore um yeah so I mean I miss the Joanna stuff because Joanna is amazing yeah, and she yeah. should be on screen all the time but the thing that I miss most about that is not the actual training sequences. It's the time. Because yeah, we yeah. go from Katniss being strangled by PETA to her being in the Capitol very quickly. And if there's a, a big time jump, it's not adequately shown. So for the audience... We're seeing both Katniss and Peta go through some really serious stuff and then seem to process it and deal with it in a very short amount of time, which does a disservice to how how damaged they both are and how much work it took for them to get back to mental stability. So yes. that's what I miss more than, you know, seeing a training montage of Katniss becoming awesome. Uh, yes. I miss I miss that that longer stretch of time where you can see PETA improving bit by bit. One of my favorite um, scenes in the book is missing in which we find out that PETA decorated Finnick and Annie's wedding cake and seeing like him take two steps forward, one step back. We get so little of that here that when they do address PETA's mental issues... Although I think they did a decent job with it, it's also a lot less than I'd like and not as spread over as much time as I would like. Which is funny when you've taken a 300-page book and you've made it into two, two-and-a-half-hour movies. Right, but the thing is, is they don't have to show that time so much. 
just as long as we have some sense that it has gone by. Right. Um, and, and they don't it, they don't do that. And if they if they do put in some visual clues to that, I miss them. So to me, when I'm watching this movie, it seems like, oh, cool, her voice is coming back. She's she just got attacked by PETA, and then it's like, okay, here we go, final battle. Well, yeah, and I'm completely, completely with you because that same thing ran through my mind. Obviously, it just finished the book that night, and and then we went to see the film. And there is that is one thing that Susan Collins is very, very conscious of throughout the storyline is the time that things take, and the uh, and a lot of people don't like this about the book. They don't like that uh, the way that the book is written. Um, I think some people feel like it feels muddled in places um, as to exactly what's going on because especially in those action scenes uh, it 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 feels so discombobulating but at the same time like I think that's one of her geniuses is that she's putting you into the middle of war and just placing you there and I felt like I honestly felt like the same thing when I saw American Sniper um, they were just placing you in the scenes and allowing you to see things through, you know, his eyes and experience in some way what it's like to be in that place. And that was well done in the movie, I thought, with all the action scenes for the most part. But like you said, it's the time that these things were taking. And like, you know, we jumped right from her being strangled and not being able to speak basically almost to them talking about what her next role is going to be and then the wedding. Mm -hmm. But there's no, like you said, there's absolutely no clues to show you. Like, you know the wonderful parts of uh, Harry Potter uh, where they show Hedwig flying and it shows you the change of scenes, yeah. seasons? You know, there's none of that, you know, because we're underground. Right. So I mean, it's very, showing that time has passed through visual yes. cues is is time honored. And it, it's it's time honored as the training montage. Um, mm -hmm. So it's not like they couldn't have done it. I, I, I imagine that they were just trying to get to what the meat of their movie is about, which is the capital. Yeah. But I think, like you were saying, it kind of hurts the actual meat of the story, which is that. Katniss and Peta story and how because th this whole you know even the book is very much about them slowly and surely overcoming all the crap that's happening to them now when I say overcoming I don't mean that they completely overcome it but that they're able to find a way to live by the end of the story you know and not just be alive but actually live have life, you know, and by them cutting out what you were talking about that time to watch things progress, you're really hurting that. I, I what I think is probably one of the most important parts of the story is how do people, and and this I think we'll just shift right into with PTSD with, who've lived through the worst things possible, actually find a way to create a life that isn't completely ruled by their past. Well, and I mean, this is this is where, like, PETA, it, the problem with the timing is with PETA mostly because we see him stark raving bonkers. And then, he, you know, he's screaming at Katniss. He's calling her names. He's telling her that he, he's trying to kill her. And then, you know... <sighs> so quickly i mean this this kind of conditioning takes really years to overcome and it was pushing it enough in the books to have him make it so far in months but in this movie they have us do it in like an hour and a half yeah it feels kind of like five minutes yeah it's kind of like okay look here Peter's messed up look here Peter's less messed up Oh, Peter's mostly okay now, and that's just not how mental illness works. No, and 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 not that kind of. I mean, what they've put these people through for for you know three films up to this point, and and the the experiences they had, and then of course on top of that, the 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 brainwashing that Peter has gone through psychologically is 
you know, she does a good enough job in the book of of talking about how bad that was and giving them the time. But yeah, you, you do this and it's really difficult to buy that both of these characters are okay by that last scene in the film. I do want to say, though, that I was very impressed with Josh Hutcherson. The fact that it works at all is due to his performance. Because you can really feel his pain, and you can really feel his confusion, and you can really feel him trying to get better. And all of that is his acting. I, I do think that he's better, in, in especially from Catching Fire on, I feel like... Um... I don't know if he he upped his game or if they just brought something to the PETA character that they hadn't had in Hunger Games. And I'm I'm with you on that. I, I think any way that the PETA storyline works is because he's making it work. I, I was one of my favorite moments in the book and it always, you know, hits me right in the heart is the whole real or not real. Yes. Yes. That scene with Katniss and Finnick and Gail and they're sitting around and he's just starting to kind of figure out how to do this and one reason why I love Finnick so much is he's like well ask you don't know what's real ask us Um, and that whole real or not real thing has always been one of my favorite things and the the way he would use that throughout the book and it could be or the movie and it could be really cheesy so I was really nervous but uh, I think that that scene and then that whole, I guess, riff, you could call it, was really well executed, and I was grateful for that because it's one of my favorite things. And it's a really, I mean, it was such a clever way for Suzanne Collins to show what's going on in Peta's mind because obviously everything in the books is from Katniss's point of view. And to have her be able to explain in such a simple way what's going on for PETA, which is there is so much of him that can't tell what's real. And yeah, I'm right there with you because for me, one of the the saddest moments is when Finnick dies because of what he's meant to both Katniss and PETA. And I hate that moment in the book, and I hated the movie. Me too. It's so. always been one of my least favorite things, and not because I'm sad Finnick died and I don't want him to die, because obviously. But to me, there's a difference between killing a character well and killing a character poorly, and in this case, I feel like she killed him poorly, especially in the book. They did a better job in the movie, basically because you couldn't miss it. Whereas in the book, it's like, oh, by the way, Finnick's dead, bye. And when you've had a character that has grown on you so much and has encompassed so many of your themes and become such an important part of your world, I don't like that she just kills him and move on. Now, I get where I, I get where I think she was coming from and that she was like, people die, and she had to up the stakes, and... Sometimes it is just that quick. I just don't like it. And it still bothers me that she killed him. Yeah, I, I think in the book and in the movie, it's the fog of war that that she's portraying there in that sense of things happen so quickly in scenes like that and in, in, in a battle that somebody dies and they're gone and, you, and you're just moving on because if you don't, you're going to die. Um, and then their death will have meant nothing because they're, you know what I'm saying? Like, so I, I, I'm, I'm torn because I'm with you in saying I wish that his death had been bigger uh, in, in, in one way. But in the other sense, the, the realism for what I feel like Suzanne has been going through this whole time and, and even the films, I'm, I'm really torn with that because I can see both sides and I, I, I feel both of that. Uh, and the tension of that, so I don't, I don't know which one I actually. I don't. I, I guess I can't say I like either one because he's dead in both ways. So <laughs> I guess this one probably serves the the thematic story that she's telling. So at least I get it. Yeah. See, I don't think it it really does because she has a lot of 
deaths there right in a row. Uh, I think she could have accomplished this with Boggs. And Boggs is a good example of, I think, a good character death. In that he he had to do, he had to die for the story to advance. His death advanced the story. It also had a deep meaning to Katniss. Whereas Finnick, it was like almost a throwaway. And that's what I didn't like. And and this whole like somebody dies and it happens immediately and you can't even barely process it, that has been done well. And I don't really want to talk about those because they're in other fandoms and goodness knows I don't want to spoil anything for anybody. But it has been done well in other franchises. I just don't feel like this one was done well. And it will forever bother me that she killed him. So in the interest of um, just my own sanity, I just, uh, Finnick O'Dare is alive. Okay? Okay. Thanks. (laughs) Him and Annie are off swimming in the ocean with their kid. They're happy. They're alive. Everything's cool. Well, that does lead me to a question, though, about just the end of the film itself and the where, you know, the book has a very interesting end to it, and so does the film. You know, Katniss is there. She watches her sister die by what we all come to believe and know is a weapon that Gale has invented. And she spends a good portion of the end of the book psychologically broken. I mean, just completely destroyed. And yet, in the film... Yes, again, instant Not so bad! Yeah, I mean, she falls asleep in the the presidential palace place. And, like, I was kind of livid watching the movie uh, with that because... That is the point of this entire story, is the effect of war on people and what it does. That no matter how righteous your cause, it's going to have an effect. One that you can't ever truly necessarily get over. And I feel like they did a huge disservice in this movie by not making that a more pronounced theme at the end because it totally whitewashed everything that she had done. And I feel like everything that the films had done from catching fire on. Well, in the book, again, months pass. (laughs) Right. I mean, and big time. I mean, we're talking a long time passes. Yeah. I mean, she wakes up in the burn unit. There's at least a couple of weeks to a couple months there where she's just healing and wandering around and being weird and hiding in closets until people find her and force her to eat. And in the in the movie, she wakes up. She's fine. She doesn't have any scars, you know? And then... Oh, yeah. We forgot to mention that her skin hasn't been burned off. Right. She doesn't have any scars. She still looks gorgeous. And they're like, okay... Quick, quick scene about the the new Hunger Games, the new horrific, terrible Hunger Games. Quick scene with President Snow, and now she's gonna walk out there with her arrow and look gorgeous and right. perfect and strong. Whereas in the book, they have to put so much makeup on her, they have to change her outfit to make it look like she hasn't lost immense amounts of weight. She's shaking. They part her so close to Snow because they're not sure she can actually shoot him because she's so damaged. None of that. Instant healing, both physically and mentally. It's nice that in the book she does this wonderful thing like that it's her body that gets all burned and she almost has like this quilt work of skin that they've put on her and, and she keeps ruining the skin that they've given her. Uh, and regrown for her because she keeps pulling off articles of clothing and it, it will kind of be tender and she's not she doesn't care um but her face is okay uh i thought that was an interesting thing um so she still has the beautiful face but they don't even yeah there's almost no reference in the book ex- uh, in the movie excuse me except for her mother putting some balm on her arm talking about how it's making her burns better like, come on. Also, 
Her mom Give just Give the woman leaves. some scars. Yes. What the heck? And, uh, I mean, it's... Uh, at least in the book, we get some sense of closure on their relationship. In this one, we never see her again. No, not at all. And I'm even fine with her, her not being around very much because, to me, and I think this is very pointedly the case, Katniss no longer considers her like an authority figure over her from the age of whenever their father right. died. Like she she fell apart, her mom fell apart, Katniss took over as like the authority figure, the head of that family, and she never looked back. Their relationship never got back to a, a mother-child relationship. The only person that I think she looks up to as like a family figure is Haymitch, and he's the one that takes her home. And that makes total sense yeah. to me, but they don't reference it. So... It's like, oh, her mom's there. Then she's gone and bye. Well, and and then to me too, the very end of the film, you know, and that's one of the things that in the book, a lot of time goes by for Katniss and Peeta. Um, They live in the same place in, in District 12 in their victor's homes, but it takes them a very long time to move towards, you know, uh, as she puts it in her mind, you know, it... Uh, from a touch of the hand, you know, to uh, a hug, to, you know, spending the night together. You know, it took them years, literally years. Like, we're talking about 10, 15 years to get to a point where they could both be okay to to live a life together. And then, of course, she talks about them also having kids and, and that, you know, PETA wanted it so badly and she finally gave in. Um, and... That has a wonderful healing effect as well on both of them uh, with their children as they create that book together. And none of that's referenced in the movie. It just feels like, oh, we hug and then like I crawl into bed with him and everything's hunky dory. And then we have two kids and the world's kind of perfect. And I mean, she says that wonderful little thing to her baby, but I don't feel it because I haven't seen any of it. You're telling me you're not showing me. And a film can't do that. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of these these problems are just adaptation problems. It's space problems. And they, all movies suffer from that to an extent. Um, overall, I think they did a fairly good job. It's just, I just wish that there was more weight. Because there should be a lot of weight to all of the pain that they've had. And their recovery yeah. should feel hard. Yes, and that's my biggest complaint is that the the film does a disservice to the story by not allowing the weight that should be felt to 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 be there squarely on your shoulders and being uncomfortable because you know that's one of the things that I do love about her book Mocking Jail. It's uncomfortable. It's not a comfortable book and and it it doesn't leave you satisfied in some ways but kind of on purpose and I feel like the film should end in that way that you should be slightly dissatisfied Um, you know the storyline does end up kind of happy but it's not you know it's not this movie ended up almost like a Disney movie sadly and the book kind of end uh, ends up melancholy. Mm-hmm. And we needed to feel the melancholy. Big part of the story is the whole Peta, Gale, Katniss dynamic. Um, how do you feel like, you know, it? especially kind of, we didn't have really talked about too much. How do you feel that that played out? Did, did that work out well for you in this film? And, and do you feel like, it, just in storyline in general, that Katniss should have always ended up with Peeta because I know obviously that was a big thing. Just like the yeah, that Twilight movement, Ugh. Team Peeta, you know, Team Gale, Team Peeta, exactly. Yeah. Um. Uh. Here's one of the major problems. Um. In that Liam Hemsworth and Jennifer Lawrence have no romantic chemistry, or at least I don't think they do. So there's a, a, a point in this movie where they're kiss and it feels like they're both bored. Unfortunately, 
Hollywood has Which, this how thing. How can you be bored kissing Jennifer Lawrence? I know, but the problem is is we, we have this thing where we're like, they're both gorgeous. Let's mash them together and they'll definitely be hot. Like, no. Chemistry is just like, like movie chemistry is just like attraction. You can't force it. You can't predict it. That's why we have screen tests. You know, that's why you put two people that are supposed to be portraying love together on film together and see what happens because you can't make it happen. I don't think they have any chemistry. So that makes it really tough for me to see a love triangle here. I don't even see Gail having a shot. <laughs> but that being said, if we're talking about just the like the the dynamic, I have never seen this as a love triangle, to be honest. To me, it's more like both of them, both Peta and Gail, represent different sides of Katniss and which she has to choose. So Gail being her rebellious side, her need to you know do things and fight, and that's a good part of her side. Like she needs that, and then Peta being the the more empathetic, forgiving side of herself. So. To that end, I don't see how you wrap up these books with her being with Gail. She has to embrace the forgiveness. She has to move on. And that requires PETA. Also, I feel like Gail and Katniss are too much alike. Um, I don't think that they would have made a good couple. It has nothing to do with who I think is cuter or anything like that. It's it's more just I don't think Gail and Katniss would work well together. And then it's compounded by the fact that when I see them on screen, I'm bored. So that's how I feel about that whole Team Peta, Team Gail thing. I don't know if I feel no chemistry between them, but I don't feel... I don't feel the hotness, you know, like the heat. You know, they, they work, I think, well on screen. They just... Th- there's no... There's no heat. I feel and... friendship. Yeah, yeah. Um, and every time they kind of f- tried to force them as a, more than that, it just it didn't work. And and the wonderful thing with her and Peta is they do have chemistry together on screen, I think. Yes. Um, they they work really well together, and, and I think that those two actors just, I feel like they got along better. You know, you could just, I don't know, there was just a feeling that I when got. When you see them in press junkets, Jennifer Lawrence and Josh Hutcherson clearly adore each other. Yeah. Um and that translates quite well. Uh there okay, so the kiss between Gail and Katniss in this movie. There is that moment in every movie kiss before they kiss. There's like that slowing of time and they're looking into each other's eyes and they're leaning forward and are they going to kiss? Oh my gosh, are they? When they're doing that, if you're not leaning forward and going kiss, kiss, kiss in your head, that's a problem. And to me, I was like, eh. So. Yeah. That's what I, I mean by I romantic chemistry. Like, if you, see, if you see a couple that have really great chemistry, you're riveted by that. Or at least I am. And in their, their case, I didn't feel it. Well, yeah. I mean, the whole goal of a film is to almost make you want that. I mean, to make you want that yourself. Not almost, but to make you long for that you know um and and or to be able to remember a time when that happened to you you know that that's that's kind of what they're going for they're they're trying to the music and and that moment and this, like you said the slowing of time all of that is is meant to move you think and empire this, strikes there's back there's nothing moving here yeah and Han and Leia, Leia and you, Han, i yeah. mean if you didn't like perch in your seat and just be like yes when han and leia kiss in on the Millennium Falcon, like you're made of stone. This is not that. <laughs> no, I mean that's a gold standard, but still. Well, and and the other thing to me too about this is is that you know not only is is Peta the goodness and the forgiveness, but Peta is also the thing that Katniss wants to be. I think in her heart better at which is that unconditional love you know that's all Peta has ever given her and it's really beautiful and it's it's honestly I feel like it's kind of hard not to fall in love with somebody who supplies you with unconditional love um, because they're gonna win you over in the end it's it's just irresistible and uh, I, I love P- 
Lapita in that sense, you know, for what he represents to Katniss, which is a a softer side of life, which sounds kind of funny to say, uh, but it's so true, you know, just a softer way of, of, of living life, and, and I love that. So I've always been on the PETA side for the books and the films as well, and uh, I I feel like that um, if there was any knock, I just wish that they had allowed them to explore the dynamic of the end of the story for the book, which was this is a rough transition for them for many, many years. And I don't know how you do that in film, um, but I, I just, that could have just been done better. So, so talking through this, um, I thought that it would be fun. We're, we're at the end of the, this saga and I thought it would be fun to rate the movie, but then Andy also give our rankings, uh, of where we would place the films as in, you know, our, our first, second, third, fourth favorite. So what about you? If I'm doing it out of five stars, I would give it three and a half. It's solidly made. Like, the it looks good. Um, it's you know, The acting is good. Um, some of the action scenes are really, really good. Uh, it's a faithful adaptation. I just feel like they missed some of the, the thematic resonance. Um, so that's that was an issue. Uh, but overall, it's, it's, a, it's a good movie. I liked it. So then, if this is a good movie and three and a half stars, how do you rank the films in your order? For me, Catching Fire is just above and beyond the others. Catching Fire, to me, is in a different class. Um, the other three are, to me, all fine. And fine verging on good, but not great. Whereas Catching Fire is, to me, great. So for if I had to put them in order, I would go um, Catching Fire, followed by The Hunger Games, followed by Mockingjay Part 2, followed by Mockingjay Part 1. But those last nice. three are all on a very similar level for me. Hmm. Well, I like that. I like that we're different then because for me, Mockingjay is a three- star movie out of five it is uh or i should i say three mocking j pins <laughs> out of five it is aptly made it like you said it does look fantastic there this movie does look very good um i i really appreciate the time they put into that especially after the first hunger games movie where you could tell they just didn't have the budget that they needed so i'm really thankful that uh you know Lionsgate really put in the the money to this to make it look what it does. There's but, no doom style missteps is what you're saying. Exactly, exactly. Um no fan forced it crap here. Um but you know, I completely agree too with the rankings in the sense that the first film that you mentioned Catching Fire, I completely agree it is hands down way above all of the other films. It is in a class of its own when it comes to these movies. Um, but next for me is Mockingjay Part 1. I really was impressed by what they were able to do with that movie and the resonance that they created. And I remember talking through it with you and the themes that we were talking about. I, I just, I really thought it was good. Uh, I'd put Mockingjay Part 2 next, and lastly, I'd put Hunger Games. Um, I have some real issues with the the original Hunger Games film. Uh, that I think they were able to overcome in the later films, uh, especially obviously just starting with Catching Fire, which is hands down brilliant. So yeah, I mean uh, the the Hunger Games for me is not. It's mostly to be honest, it's the fact that I think it had the best source material. So I agree. I have issues with the the Hunger Games, the first movie, um, but for me that first book has always been my favorite. So I think that translates to my fondness for the movie. Mm. Yeah, that's great though. I mean, it is a it is really a good book. Uh, and um, I mean, that's it's interesting to me that my favorite book is The Hunger Games. My favorite movie is Catching Fire. That's interesting to me. Hmm. For me, my favorite book is still Catching Fire. 
And because I remember the first time I read it being like, what the? Because I couldn't believe they were going back to the Hunger Games. Because uh, I didn't know. I didn't know the story, you know, and she got me. So I that for me, that big twist was she got me. And uh, so I still love it. <laughs> I think the thing for me is Rue. So we haven't yeah. talked about Rue because I'm sure at this point most people have almost forgotten about her, to be honest. But to me, Rue is the heart of that entire series because Rue really is the catalyst for a lot of what is happening. Katniss would not have played the Hunger Games the way she did without Rue. Her relationship with Rue changed everything and Rue's death changed everything and the way Katniss reacts to her death changed everything. If you think about... She honored Rue's death in a way that they had never seen in the Hunger Games before. And that and the subsequent, like, in Catching Fire, trying to to explain to everyone what Rue meant to her, all of that is a huge reason why the books unfolded the way they did. And Rue's death in the first one is still the most just heartbreaking, resonant moment for me for the whole series. So it's hard for me to... It's hard for me to let that one go. No, I, I, I'm right there with you. That was, oh gosh, that was an amazing part of the book, and uh, well done in the film too. That was that was one of the things in the Hunger Games movie. I think they did well. So the ruse melody, mm-hmm. yeah, still makes yep. me tear up. It just, yeah, it just it's like sensory, like Pavlov. Like I, I hear that melody and I want to cry. And then yeah. that meaning that that salute she does for Rue and for Rue's district, mm-hmm. that also really hits me right in the feels. So. Well, Andy, I, I'm really glad that we got a chance to follow up, you know, um, Mockingjay Part 1 with Mockingjay Part 2. And it did not disappoint with great themes for us to continue to talk about. And I, I think that just speaks for the, the series itself uh, with the, what Suzanne Collins did create. And I hope people will really dig into the storylines and the books and when they're rewatching the films, really think deeply about what she's trying to say because I think in the world that we live in, it's immensely important. So, um, But uh, I wanted to thank our associate producers here on the 602 club for allowing us to be able to do this each and every week. Uh, I love doing this show and it's because of Ken Tripp and David Grayson, our associate producers here through Patreon that I'm able to do it. And we're able to bring this great content to you on Trek FM. Uh, Now we are a listener supported network. And what that means is, is that instead of having ridiculous amounts of ads and things like that in our podcasts uh, to pay for it, we want to just make sure we give you quality content that sounds great, is entertaining and fun, but that uh, doesn't annoy you while you listen to it. So uh, if you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, you'll be able to see how you can join our team and help make sure that content does keep coming to each week. Uh, We've got some great gifts for you. Our um, main executive producer, Christopher Jones, just, just set up the patron.zone. That's patron.zone, which is such a fun place. You can get exclusive content. You can get shows early, all sorts of great stuff. Um, and that's just for $5 a month. Um, and it's it's just a great way to help us out. And then if you're $25 or more, you can join us on our listeners podcast, the Patreon Roundtable, which we do twice a month now. So just go to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can become a part of the team. Well, Andy... Thank you for joining me. And before we do go, let everybody know where they can find you online and on the network. Well, you can find me on the network uh, on Women at Warp, where me and three of my colleagues talk about the portrayal of women on Star Trek. You can also uh, follow me on Twitter at First Time Trek, where I'm live tweeting my first time through Star Trek. Excellent. And let everybody know, where are you in Star Trek these days? I am midway through season two. I just got to see the first episode that made me go, oh, O'Brien and Bashir. This is going to be a thing. 
Um, ah, yes. I, I've I've named their ship name Bashirian. So. Uh, ah, that's that's <laughs> probably one of my favorite relationships in all of Star well, Trek. Well, I can see why. Um, it so. was uh, the first episode where I was like, "Wow, I really like it when these two are on screen together. I want to see more." So, yeah. halfway through season two, that's where I'm at. Awesome. Well, everybody can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me on Instagram at MRushing. And TrekFM is on Instagram now, so check us out at TrekFM. You can also find me doing The Orb with Christopher Jones, talking exclusively about Deep Space Nine. You can also find me on Literary Treks with Dan, talking about the books and the comics of Star Trek, as well as interviewing the authors about the new books that come out. And I do have my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? 